How's everybody doing tonight? Nice to see you. I'm Bill. I'm, uh, I'm Bill. I'm one of the pastors here at Crossings. If you're new here, you've never seen me before, I have the privilege of working with Andy, but oftentimes behind the scenes. So it is good to be with you guys. Always good. Andy and uh, the young adult staff team's down in Dallas at a conference. So Andy asked me to wrap up this uh, massive series we've been doing on the attributes of God, describing God. And before I dive into that, you got one of these when you came in. It is fine-tuned for younger eyes. I'm 50, so I need big glasses to see the font on this thing, but you might have got one. On one side of it, it says the Apostles' Creed and the Gloria Patri, and it gives some estimated dates. And on the flip side, it's the Nicene Creed and a little pet peeve of mine, I apparently gave the wrong dates. That is 325 AD. Grab your pen right now in front of you. Fix that. I'm just into like historical accuracy. I want you to have that for later Put this on a mirror in your house, in your car, wherever you will see it. It's a good little tool to help you think about who God is. So let's get started, shall we? So as we've been in this series on the attributes of God, Andy said, hey, you could wrap it up any way you want. And I thought, why not wrap it up in a discussion, a presentation about perhaps the most misunderstood, confusing, mysterious aspect of God, and that is God's Trinitarian nature. How many of you feel like you already understand it? You didn't need to come tonight. Yeah, most people, when they hear Trinity, Trinitarian theology, and I know some of you right now are like, really, that's what we're talking about? Trust me, you will enjoy it, and by the end, you'll be glad that you came. In the presentation this evening, I'm gonna respond to four questions about the Trinity. Here they are, I've got them for you right up front. You can take a picture of them, so then you know we're progressing along very nicely. Question one, what's the Trinity? Question two, how does the Bible, or what does the Bible teach about the Trinity? Question three, how do I understand the Trinity? Like, how do I make sense of it? And number four, so what? What do I do with this? What do I, what do I take away with this? Now, before I get into those questions, I wanna ask a different question, just a kind of get us rolling along. Have you ever had a friend, maybe a long-term friend, ideally somebody you have known, invested years in, you thought you knew everything about them, and then boom, some new aspect of that friend was revealed to you and your mind was blown? Have you ever had something like that? I see some heads nodding. Most of us have had that at some point or another. Someone you've known for years, maybe it was a relative, maybe it was your grandma or your grandpa, and you thought, oh, sweet, mild man or grandpa, and then you found out he was in the Marines in Vietnam. And you're like, how could that sweet, mild man or grandpa operate a machine gun? I had this happen to me a few years ago. A friend of mine, his name is Juno Smalley. I know it sounds like I made up his name. If that is a real name, he is not an author or a musician or an artist. He's a pastor. And I've known Juno for like 20 years. We met when we both served large churches in our home state of Michigan. Any Michiganders in the room? Oh, hey, all right, right on. Let's talk later. So we met at a church conference. We both served large churches. I was on the west side of the state. He was on the east side of the state. And it turned out as we got to know each other, we both had cut our teeth in a college student development. We both had worked at universities fresh out of graduate school, but we had a passion for ministry, so that's how we ended up in church, and we were at a conference around a subject we were both passionate about, 
Turned out we read the same books. We attended, obviously, that same conference, but we ended up attending a lot of same conferences together. We always stayed at the same hotel, ate at the same restaurants when we stayed at the hotel. We even took senior pastorates in California roughly at the same period of time. He's still there suffering in California. I'm in the great state of Oklahoma. And I wouldn't trade this state for California any day of the week. However, he's still there, but we, we swap notes. Even to this day, we talk on the phone, text, or email at least once a week. Juno's a dear friend. But about five, six years ago, Facebook reminded me of when his birthday was, so I pop on his page to wish him a happy birthday, and my cousin had wished him a happy birthday. Now, up till then, I had no idea that my cousin knew Juno or Juno knew my cousin. You ever had the world's collide moment, Right? And I had a world's, how did you even know each other? And Juno just offered up, well, I officiated your cousin's wedding. Now here's what's weird. I was at that wedding. <laughs> it was a couple years before I met Juno. I was at the wedding, Juno was at the wedding. We didn't know each other were at the wedding. He didn't know I was related to Lauren. And Lauren had no idea when he asked Juno to officiate the wedding that years down the road, the guy who officiated his wedding would become really close friends with his cousin. And so we had this like great moment where we learned something new about each other, that we both shared something in common. Now that's not mind blowing, but it's just fun. So as we dive into tonight's topic about God, it will be a little bit fun and a little bit mind blowing. There's gonna be an aspect to all this that you thought you knew before, or maybe you've never given any thought to before, but as we roll along, you're gonna learn something new about God, an aspect of God, a description of God that hopefully will make your relationship with God all the richer, all the more meaningful. So let's dive in, shall we? We're gonna go into that very first question, and the very first question is, what is the Trinity? Now that word comes from an old Latin word, trinitas. And the old Latin word, trinitas, it just means threefold or it means threeness. But it conveys something different than just like three things. It, it's, it's got this idea that there's a, a unified whole while there's still a threeness. So it, it, it occupies a weird place both in mental concept but also in language, because it's not just three, because we already have a word for that. It's Trinity. It's this whole, and it's got this threeness to it. And what happened is as early Christians in the first century began to study and explore the scripture, they were front and center to this odd concept. God is one, and God started in the New Testament, revealing different ways of addressing God. Is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit? Now to us, if, if you grew up in church, you're like, yeah, so what? But, but if we could rewind the time and we could be in the first century along with that early church, this would be something very difficult to digest. If you would have grown up in the Greek system or the Roman system, you'd be like, yeah, there are three gods. Yeah, that's perfect. I always believed in multiple gods. However, once you became a Christian, Christians are like, no, no, there's only one God. There's not three gods or two gods or 10 gods. There's just one. And if you grew up Hebrew, you always thought there was only one God. So when people started referring to God as both Father and the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, 
It made some of those people a little uncomfortable. But it, it, it wasn't a concept that scholars and theologians came up with. We see it first in the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. If you have a copy of the scriptures, feel free. In fact, we're gonna burn through a lot of scripture tonight. You can grab your phone, take pictures of the screen if you want. I will not be bothered by that in the slightest. First verse, Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says this. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations. This is in a context known as the Great Commission. He's telling his disciples what they ought to do. Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the, and the Holy Spirit. Now that, that had to cook a few of them. You see, um, it would have been bad form to baptize in anyone's name but the name of God. I work here at Crossings. If you come here, you know the senior pastor's Marty Grubbs, great guy. I get a privilege of working with him. Same guy on the platform as he is in the hallway, great guy. He has never suggested, hey, while you're at it, baptize people in my name since they're at my church. I wouldn't do it, he wouldn't ask for it. It would actually technically be a form of heresy. We wouldn't do that. We wouldn't, there is a angel that we know of that's revealed in scripture named Gabriel. And we don't know a lot about him other than people were really afraid of him when he showed up. But nobody ever suggested when you're baptizing, consider mentioning Gabriel's name. That would have been bad form. Jesus says when you baptize, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not just Jesus, the Apostle Paul, as he's signing off one of his letters, this is at the tail end of a big long letter he wrote to the Corinthians. That church was so messed up, it makes 21st century churches look like on point. That church had problems. He wrote two letters that we have and one that we don't have. We just know he referenced a missing letter. Wish we had that one too. But at the tail end of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, may the grace of the, what is it? Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of who? The Holy Spirit be with you all. He's mentioning once again this Trinitarian formula. It's not just Jesus, it's not just Paul. The other big influencer of the New Testament is Peter. And Peter, at the beginning of his letter, 1 Peter, he says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia. This is all modern day Turkey in the northern area. He says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be to yours in abundance. And so in the very earliest decades of the church, people looked at all this and said, what do we, how do we make sense of this? There's one God, and there's these three titles, names. How, how do we explain this? There's one guy, Sibelius, he, he attempted, he said, well, maybe God goes in modes. Like if you have ever driven a manual transmission car, maybe it's like first gear, then second gear, then third gear. He shifts, he's God the Father. And then when he comes to earth, he's Jesus. And then after the ascension, he's the Holy Spirit. And that became known as modalism. But, but then other people stepped up and said, but that doesn't make any sense because Jesus prayed to the Father how do you in one mode pray to yourself in a different mode? Do you, do you have some sort of time machine? I mean, 
Who are you praying to because you're you? There is no father in that moment. You're the son, the only one. And so modalism, as it was called, didn't quite work out. And then, then there was another guy. His name was Arius. And Arius came up with a pretty clever idea because if you misunderstand a couple biblical texts, it, it could be interpreted that because Jesus was begotten, firstborn over creation, if you don't quite understand how that is playing out in that original language, you might think, well, God the Father sort of gave birth or made Jesus. And that's what Arius taught. Arius said, well, there was this time in which there was no son, no Jesus, and then the Father made the son. And, and that became a, a controversy in the early church. In fact, it was so controversial that a council was called, and that's on the backside of your little sheet there, Nicaea in 325, and a bunch of church leaders got together and said, yeah, but that doesn't work either because if, if Jesus is not God, but he's part of the created order, how does a not God die for the sins? Like, that doesn't work. If he is like a super angel, a angelic being can't die for people, maybe die for angels, maybe, in a, but it can't die for people. And so it wasn't that they suppressed, it's just that they had a big open conversation. Emperor Constantine was there at the moment, and everybody got a chance to speak into it, and when they voted, they were like, yeah, Arius is wrong. There's, there's one God in three persons. Now, if we were to define Trinity, what does it mean? We could say that it's an expression of the unity, God, unity of God in three persons. Now, I know right now, some of you, I'm losing some of you. I know it, because I know some of us, we're all wired different. Some of us are like, I love the part where I feel. And then there are other people who are like, this is feeding my soul right now. I love the part where I think. But we're both. We both feel and we both think. And so stay engaged in this because there is a spot for no matter how you are engineered to connect with this. So the next question is, what does the Bible teach about the Trinity? Now, you might have already got ahead of me, Googled me like, where is Trinity in the Bible? There is no word Trinity in the Bible. But there are a lot of words not in the Bible that we still have trust in. Like words like airplane and automobile, not in the Bible. I'll still trust getting on an airplane even though it's not in the Bible. So don't get hung up on it's not in the Bible. The question is, where do we see the evidence of this in the Bible? And regardless of what your profession or your job is, my guess is whatever it is you do, there is a framework to think through the work you do, isn't there? If you're an engineer, there is a framework to think through, make decisions about whether a bridge will hold up under certain weight pressure span. It's a framework. If you're a school teacher, there's a philosophical framework that decides when to introduce certain topics at certain age levels and when not to, right? If you're a nurse, there is a certain framework or a way of thinking through a situation so that you can treat well a patient. There's a framework. This might shock you, but in the world of scholarship of theology, there are various grids and frameworks that are employed to help people reason through the stuff they see in the Bible. I went to a 
a Bible college, which was a technical school designed to basically train pastors and missionaries. Then I went to a Christian graduate school to sort of double down on that theme afterwards. And it might shock you, but we spent no time in class just on our knees praying, face on the dirt. We didn't get grades for fasting or scripture memory. They actually taught a discipline around the way to think about these things. And so there is a discipline around how to capture or understand this particular theology. And I'll introduce, I'll, I'll, I'll pull back the curtain a little bit so you get to see it too, because I think this is really important. Faith is faith, but there is good thinking behind what we believe and why we believe it. So here's a little peek behind the curtain. This comes from Thomas Oden. He's a legendary modern scholar of uh, theology, passed away a couple years ago, but here's how he framed it. He said, the classic method to establish Trinitarian theology, this is Odin's work, he didn't come up with this, but he encapsulated it in one of his volumes, and so I give him credit for it. There's four kind of grids, if we will, to think through this issue. Each person, in order to find the Trinity, each person of the Trinity must be distinctly addressed by divine names. In other words, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have to be called God or use a name that's akin to that. Number two, each person of the Trinity demonstrates divine attributes. We've just had several weeks in a row of divine attributes. Number three, each person of the Trinity engages in actions only God can accomplish. And then number four, each person of the Trinity is thought worthy of divine worship. So let's walk through this a bit. Let's look at the first one. Each person of the Trinity is distinctly addressed by divine names. Again, this might be a place where if you want and you wanna check my work later or follow up, take a picture of the screen. The Father is called God in Galatians 1. This is the Apostle Paul's writing in Galatians 1.3. Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. The Son is called God. This is at the beginning of the Gospel of John, some of the most poetic and beautiful words in the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. And if you need to check out the context, the Word is Jesus Christ himself. That's in John's context. The Holy Spirit is also called God. This is in Romans 8. This is, again, from the pen of the Apostle Paul. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are called the children of God. And so we see the name of God. I was only able to use one verse per. There's hundreds. I figured you didn't want to be here till next Thursday. So I've condensed some of this. So just in case you're like, well, give me some more verses. See me after class. All right. Second big idea here is each person of the Trinity demonstrates or is assumed to have divine attributes. And for this, I've just picked one of the attributes. One attribute of God is that he is eternal. Eternal means he has no beginning and no end. That's compared to the word everlasting, which is what our souls are. We have a beginning and then no end. That's everlasting, but eternal is no beginning, no end. And here it is. The Father is eternal. This is in Genesis. We'll go back to the Old Testament for this. 21, verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. The Son, Jesus Christ, is called eternal in Matthew 28. This is just at the very end of, of 20. 
Jesus, this is from his own words, I am with you always. This is his promise. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's a poetic way of saying, I'm here forever. The Holy Spirit is eternal. This is in Hebrews 9, verse 14. How much more then, the writer of Hebrews says, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God? The eternal spirit. So we have the name God being attributed to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We have this attribute of eternality. But then what we see is each member of the Trinity does only what God can do. Not what angels can do, not what really great people can do, but what only God can do. And for this, we'll just look at only God can forgive sins. I can tell you, hey, it's gonna be okay. I can pray with you if you wanna confess sin. I have no power to forgive your sin, and no other human does, but God does. And so it says the Father here, he forgives sins. This is 1 Peter 1, 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in this in his great mercy, he has given us new birth. This is a big fancy way of saying, he has taken the burden of sin off your back, removed it, and now you are in newness because of Jesus Christ. But it's the Father who did this. The Son also forgives sins. This is, this is one of the scenes in the Gospels that got Jesus in a lot of trouble. It's in the second chapter of Mark. Some friends lower their crippled friend through a roof. You may or may not know this story. If you don't, go back and read it. Crippled friend gets lowered through the roof. He's in real hard, hard way. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And as soon as he says that the religious leaders, they're like, who is this guy? Only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus, knowing what they thought, said, I'll prove I can forgive sins. And he heals the guy. So Jesus forgives. And then the Holy Spirit forgives sin. This is in Titus 3. This is from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Are you staying with me now? You look like you are. So that's a good sign. This is what Paul says. But, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal, get this, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit renews. Once again, there, there is nothing in the Bible that said that great angel, Gabriel, did some renewing on your behalf. None. He conveys messages for God. He does not renew us. That is something here the Holy Spirit is attributed to have done. Now, this is really remarkable stuff. You see why in the early church, as people were reading this stuff, they're going, okay, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, how do we wrap our mind around this. Well, one more before we move on to the next question. Each person of the Trinity is thought worthy of divine worship. The Father is worshiped. This is in John 4, 23. Yet a time is coming, Jesus said. This is to a woman he meets at a well. She's a Samaritan woman. He says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. You're gonna worship the Father and you're gonna worship him in spirit and truth. But the son is also worshiped. We see this in Revelation. It's one of the most profound passages in this apocalyptic book. In Revelation 5, verses 11 and 12, John, who is attributed to have seen this great vision and written it down, he says, then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. 
it's his way of saying there was a bunch of people there, bunch of angels there. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That's Jesus Christ. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. My, my friends, in God's wisdom, sometimes he gives you strength. In God's mercy, he sometimes gives you uh, resources and power. But it's not because you're worthy. None of us in this room are worthy to receive anything. The true, the true term is we are unworthy. But God in his love and his mercy gives us what we, what we don't deserve. He, was, he withholds what we do deserve. So we don't come into this room, into a church, into a small group, into a class, into a Bible college, because we're worthy people. There's only one worthy, and that's God. And he's worthy of being worshiped. And in this case, this would be the Son, Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit is worshiped. This is in John 4.24. We just read 4.23. Jesus goes on and says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and truth. Not that we ought to worship spiritually, that's true, but we're worshiping the Spirit of God. All right, so the Bible, the Bible uses this concept, but how do we understand it? Because if, if you're like me, you can read those verses, and it doesn't exactly paint a picture. And so throughout history, people have grappled with images and pictures. You, you might have heard of some of them. Like, for instance, uh, sometimes people say the Trinity is, is like um, fire. There's light, and then there's heat, and there's smoke. You, you might have heard, uh, I like this one. It's a little folksy, but the Trinity is like a cherry pie. There is a crust, and there's like the oozy kind of stuff in a cherry pie. If you've ever tried to cut a hot cherry pie, good luck. And then there's fruit. Other people have said uh, the Trinity is like water. There's there's liquid, and then there's steam, and, and, uh, and there's ice. That's all water, but in different kind of forms. But none of those work. All of those are just too um, physical. And so uh, one of the great minds that has ever lived, St. Augustine, and he, uh, he lived between the 350s and died about 430 AD, he came up with some less tangible, but I think they're actually helpful descriptors. So hopefully this will help you kind of conceptualize this. Augustine, for instance, he says, um, the Trinity is like a normal mental process. So think of the mental process this way. You see or you taste or you touch something, and, and then your brain considers the thing, right? You taste something good or you touch something nice or foul or what have you, and your brain goes, oh, it's a grilled cheese or it's a cat or whatever it is, you, you know? And then you understand. Oh yes, I've had an experience with cats before. They're terrible. I'm leaving, right? So you you have a you have a an interaction with a thing. Your brain goes, "This is what this is," and then you're like, "That's right. I don't like this thing." And so this is all taking place up here. But yet, while each part is individual, they're interlocked. It happens like that. Or um, Augustine, he I like this one. It was more like a sentimental process. Um, you remember something. Just, it, there might be a trigger for it, but all of a sudden in your mind, you just remember something. Have you ever had that happen? 
All of a sudden, you remember a family function? or I mean, let's just think on something good for the moment. I know right now, some of you are like, let's think about bad things. No, think about something really good. So it, it, gets, it gets up in your brain, and then you, you make meaning of that thing. And then, uh, and then you, you make a, a determination or decision. Now, I know that's really cerebral, but here's, here's what happens to me all the time. My family makes fun of me for this one. But if I'm just walking along outside somewhere and I smell secondhand smoke, you know what my thought is? I miss my family. I know, it's not where you thought I was going, right? But it's true. I grew up in a family, extended family, both uncles, both aunts, chain smoked. And so when we came into a family function, a dinner, any type of thing, my grandparents would host it. They lived in a very small house and there was this burning blue haze in the air and your clothes would smell like smoke. And so whenever I smell like I smell secondhand smoke just wafting through the air, I think, man, grandma's house. <laughs> Miss grandma, grandma's gone. I'll call my mom. Right, I mean, so a decision is made. Like you have this, uh, all of a sudden there's a trigger, you think about it, and you make a decision and you act on it. And Augustine said the Trinity is like that. It all happens instantaneously. You can't quite sort the elements out, and yet you can step back and go, I thought that thought because. Uh, the, the, the other one that he uses, and I like this one, it's an it's a emotional um, process. You like you love someone or something, you know, and you... You can't always explain why, uh, but, and you have a relationship with that person or that object, and, and, then, um, and then you experience a binding love. You can't let it go. So there's just something there, and you, you're even maybe frustrated at yourself that you hold on to an, an item, or maybe you hold on to a relationship, but it's this binding love. And so Augustine used these terms. This is, again, he was writing this stuff in the fourth century. It goes to show the brilliance of that man, that he could think of those things. In the, um, in the Middle Ages, or medieval era, there, there was a, a physical image that came to be associated with the Trinity. We have a, a picture of it, I believe. It's um, like the, called the Trinitarian knot. Someone in this room might even have a tattoo of this one. You know, I mean, it's, you might not even know that this thing was designed and uh, decorated churches to help people see kind of an idea. It's, it's intertwined, it's one thing, and yet there are these three elements to it. And that is actually based off of like this badge or this shield. I think we have a picture of that one. And uh, this one, uh, just a little uh, lesson in Latin for the evening, because I know you were thinking, I hope we learn some Latin on Tuesday night at the gathering, so you're welcome. But uh, this is uh, an image that is actually what that Trinitarian knot was sort of based off. The top is P for pater, because this is in Latin, and F is uh, phileus, and then SS over there would be the, uh, the spiritus uh, sanctus. And uh, if you grew up speaking Espanol as your primary language or your language of origin, you'd recognize in the middle is Dios, or in Espanol, Dios. And non est means is not. So again, if you grew up speaking Spanish, es is is, right? But 
The Father is not the Son, Phileas, and the Son, Phileas, is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. And so in the outer ring there, they are not each other. They are distinct members, distinct persons. However, with Dios in the middle, God in the middle, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. If you are looking for a nice tattoo idea, I recommend this one. I've seen some really unfortunate tattoos in my day, so if you're gonna choose, choose wisely. That's a pretty good one. But no image is perfect. There's a modern theologian that tried to explain, you know, he recognizes no, no uh, image is perfect. His name's Fred Sanders, no, no relation to the colonel. And uh, <laughs> if you got that one, explain it to your friend who didn't afterwards. But, Fred Sanders is a, uh, a, a solid theologian uh, out in the West Coast. And, and so Sanders says, we gotta be careful about sneaking around behind the back of God. There are things that we can know and there are things that we accept by faith, but what we have to be clear on is what we can know about God and what we can't know about God. And so Sanders says, don't go sneaking around behind the Almighty trying to figure out things he didn't set before you to understand. And I know some, some of you are like, well, see, this is the problem with Christianity. There's always this faith thing. We take a lot of things by faith. You got a smartphone? Do you understand how it works? Explain it to me afterwards. I, I assume it's witchcraft, but I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I know there's binary code or something back there. I don't understand Bluetooth or Wi-Fi, and I don't understand how that works. But I know it works, and it hasn't stopped me from trusting it and using it. And so it is with this concept before we get too preoccupied with the details of it, what we have to back up is say, well, here's what I can know. Here's what I can say. So now we come to the point where uh, a few of you have been like, when are we getting to the, so what? Well, we're, we're there now. What difference does this make in my life? You know, at the very beginning of the scriptures, there's two verses, Genesis 1, verse 26 and verse 27. And volumes have been written just on those two verses. There's many, 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 many lessons out of it. But I want us to see something that, that back to St. Augustine, he saw. He noted something in Genesis 1, 26 that had to have been mysterious to the original audience when they first heard these words somewhere 1,000, 1,200, 1,400 BC, somewhere in there. And the words start this way, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. There's a, there's a plural pronoun set in there, let us Make mankind humans in our image, in our likeness. You ever wondered who he's talking to? I'll tell you who he's not talking to. He's not talking to angels. We're not made in the image of angels. We're made in God's image. Nowhere in scripture does it indicate we have any angelic DNA or image in us, none. And by the way, might be a disappointment when you die, you don't become an angel. 
That's another sermon for a different day, and I'm sorry if I just wrecked your evening. No, no, we're different. We're marked, we're set apart. We're image bearers of the creator of the universe. And so that, that sets us apart in creation. It ought to put a little chill up our spine and a smile on our face. That because everyone's sitting in this room, everyone listening, we are image bearers of God of the triune God. And so there's three takeaways for this. And I'm gonna give them to you so you have them, but I'm gonna unpack them. There's three takeaways. One is your God is too small. The second is you are made to worship God. And the third is you are made to relate to others. Let me just say a word about each one. Your God is too small. I promise everyone in this room, myself included, our God is too small. For most of us, God will fit in our pocket. For most of us, God is a person that we can turn to in a pinch, in a moment of need. But we have this very small picture of God. Some people even say it in small ways. Hey, say a, would you say a word for me to the man upstairs? If you work with anybody who knows you're a Christian and prays, odds are at some point or another, someone's like, hey, shoot a prayer up for me to the man upstairs. Not a man. He's not upstairs. <laughs> Your God's really small. If there's a man upstairs, that's creepy, all right? That's, he's a stalker. He's not God, all right? If you got a man upstairs, call the cops. But there's no man upstairs. He's not cosmic Santa. He's not withdrawn. Your God is probably too small. In the 50s, there was an author, J.B. Phillips. He wrote actually one of the most, the first modern English translations, the Phillips translation. J.B. Phillips wrote a book by that name, Your God is Too Small. It's still in print. It's worth a read. God's too small. Most of the time, we avoid coming into contact with the uncomfortable sides of God because it would require of us some sort of paradigm shift in our lives some sort of new way of thinking about God and our relationship to him, and it is just a little bit easier to keep him small. But, but God is not small. Years ago, I, offici I, I uh, baptized a buddy of mine, Mark. Uh, this was in California. And so when I baptized Mark, he, he, he literally turned to me and he was like, man, if you knew what I did, you better be careful. When I go under the water, there's gonna be lightning bolts. And I said, wrong God, that's Zeus. God don't lightning bolt sinners who repent. He rejoices. Zeus has nothing to do with today. God's too small. It's popular today for people to break up with God. You might be here on fumes on this one. You might have a friend who at some point or another I see it on social media. People will write a breakup letter with God or they'll film a little video. This is why I don't believe in this God anymore. And it always makes me sad. Not because we're losing one on our side. I, uh, I'm always sad because usually what they express, I think I break up with that God too. Usually it's a hurt from the church 
hurt because of relationships, or sometimes it's just a misunderstanding of who God is, and they don't want anything to do with that God, but I wouldn't want anything to do with the God they talk about either. Get a bigger God. No more small God. You know, in, in a Jane Austen books or movies, you ever see any of those, Pride and Prejudice? I know all the guys in the room, women, just ask the guys afterwards about Emma or any of those. They're, they're still out there. You can suffer through them. The basic gist of it is there's always a rich guy who got rich through colonialism and exploitation of people, but that would be really awkward to bring up in a book. I mean, how else does he have a castle? Give me a break. And so he didn't invent anything. He just sits around and writes poetry. But he can't quite have a relationship with a girl because she's a peasant class gal who at one time had something, now has nothing. And it takes two hours worth of a movie. I'm just saving you. You don't have to see any of them now. They're all the same. Two, three hours of a movie or six hours of a miniseries. Is that punishing? And at the, finally, at the end, the... The couple get together, and there's never a sequel because the sequel would be marriage therapy because they have no idea who they have a relationship with. They ended up falling in love with an idea of the other person because it's not like they ever had a conversation. That comes later, and that's when they find out, oh, we really have nothing in common. And his wife says something like, really, you should quit exploiting people in the colonies. That would be the sequel I would write, all right? That's the first takeaway. I've taken the first takeaway too far now, but get a bigger God, all right? You got the picture, all right? I promise the next two are very short. Second takeaway. Second takeaway is you are made to worship God. We are engineered to worship. We are engineered to worship. God made us in his image, and we have this craving to get back to the very one in whose image we are made. Have you, have you ever, um, you, you ever uh, felt the tug to attend a, a family function? And on one level, you're like, I don't want to go. But on another level, you're like, I got to go. Relative dies. There's a wedding. People might drive you nuts. But you got to be there because they're your people. You share a name with them. You have to be with them. Some people are crazy enough that they go on websites and they find out about relatives they've never met from generations ago. No idea if they're good people or bad people, but they go there. How come? Because there's this insatiable need to be connected to our people. You have an insatiable need to be connected to your God. And if you don't connect with him, if you don't worship him, you will worship everything but him. And you will make a God out of something different. And generations from now, whatever it is you worship, some future archaeologist will dig up in a desert and make fun of. Somewhere down the road, there's a future Indiana Jones finding a corner office going, can you believe everything people sacrificed to get to this thing? You're going to worship something. And God invites you to worship him. And then there's this third idea. This third takeaway. You you were made for community. You ever had that lonely feeling in the pit of your being and you think, am I a weak person? No. You're made in the image of God. The God who exists perpetually, eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has revealed himself in some sort of 
divine community that we barely can comprehend, and yet three persons in one, blessed trinity, and you're made in that image, and I'm made in that image. And there is something in us that wants to sit near others, to be known and to know, to connect at a very deep level. And if you don't have that, you're disappointed and you're sad and you might think that's weakness. Now on that point, there is a problem. There is a problem because of sin. If you go, well, if we're made to relate, why is it so hard? I will tell you the secret. It's because you are a selfish sinner. That's part of why community is so hard. You're a selfish sinner. Say it with me. I'm a selfish sinner. No, I know. Some of you are like, I'm not saying it. No, say it. We're not leaving here until everybody says that. I'm a selfish sinner. I get in the way. Now, I don't want you to feel bad. I want you to turn to the person next to you and go, you're a selfish sinner. Do it right now. Look at them. Look them in the eyes as lovingly as you can. You selfish sinner. Some of you are a little too fervent. Back off. Relax. Okay? Just illustrating. I'm not trying to create problems in a relationship. Sin gets in the way. We're going to offend each other. We're going to step on each other. We're going to cheer for different teams and different candidates of different political parties. We're going to have slightly nuanced, different ways of saying things, doing things, dressing particular ways, eating certain food. We're going to annoy each other. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to break hearts and mend hearts. And that is God's plan A, the person next to you. And so as you come away from tonight, I hope that you understand that while a deep and vaulting and mysterious concept, this Trinitarian theology, I hope what you come away with is a deep curiosity about the God who made you with an ever-growing picture of that massive God that is so worthy of worship, you can't help but worship the true God. And you walk in connection and community with others, as messy and ugly and unfortunate as it sometimes can be, it is still worth it. And so as we go into this uh, 120 seconds, it, it's possible one, one aspect of the, the talk struck you right between the eyes. And either you, in the privacy of your seat, need to pray, or whether or not you need to go. We have prayer people that oftentimes are over here or in the back, and I know. If you're like me, you're like, I can pray by myself, thank you very much. Well, maybe tonight you need to pray with one of them. Maybe tonight is a night you take a little more risk. You pray with someone, you make a friend, you deepen your faith. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to come into this space, to gather together, and to think about you. Would you deepen us in our appreciation for you, our love for you, and our love for one another? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.